Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome partner at Matrix, Diana Kimball Berlin, to discuss how she went from geek squad at Harvard to startup operator and investor. In this episode, we dig into Diana's fascinating career journey, starting from her early days as a Harvard computer user assistant to her role as a product leader and eventually an investor. Next, we dig into her product roles at SoundCloud and Quip and how those roles shaped her into a skilled product builder and leader amidst the changes faced by those companies. We also unravel the story behind her acclaimed podcast, Should We?, and why she eventually ventured into the world of venture capital and joined storied VC fund Matrix. Diana takes us inside Matrix, explaining their mission and ethos as an early stage investment fund and how they navigate the ever-evolving boundaries between sectors in the startup world. Finally, Diana shares her strategy for portfolio construction and how she navigates reinvestment decisions and what her biggest passions are in life beyond the world of technology and startups. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's interview with Diana Kimball Berlin from Matrix. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Diana. Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm excited to be here. You know, Diana, you've had some interesting roles during your career in technology companies. First at Harvard University as a computer user assistant, aka Geek Squad, fixing computer problems for students, all the way to internships at Microsoft and Kickstarter. You know, it'd be great if you can give our audience a brief introduction on how you got started working in the world of technology and startups, and eventually how you made your way over to the dark side, aka venture capital. Yeah, sure. So happy to be here. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a long winding road. I started my career uh, in a funny way because I was actually a liberal arts major in college. So, uh, you know, studied history, had a minor in visual and environmental studies, which at Harvard is like the art major, basically, then also uh, studied Russian. So nothing to do with computers. But you know, my dad's a professor, a professor of econ. And so I always grew up thinking I would be a professor one day. I just assumed like, I like school, why not stay in school forever? And then halfway through college, I kind of looked around and was like, wait a second, I've made a critical error here. You know, the history PhDs around me who are TAing my sections don't seem very happy. So, you know, it's something about my future path, uh, if I maintain the status quo is you know, it needs to be questioned. Like, uh, so I ended up thinking, okay, maybe being a history professor is the only thing I can be happy doing, but I should test that assumption <laughs> before I commit my life to it. So I decided to see, you know, if there's one other thing I love, like, what would it be? Um, and I loved history. Like, I loved being in the libraries. I loved, uh, you know, getting old yellowing magazines. Um, so I loved history, but I was like, what else do I love? I love computers, uh, but I'd never taken a computer science class. You know, I grew up kind of in the AOL Instant Messenger days, so that's how I learned to type really fast, and was kind of an early internet user uh, back in the dial-up days. So I had a big affinity for computers, but had never studied it. And so I just thought, you know, maybe I can get a job in tech, maybe I can't, but I should try. So my junior year, I shifted all my extracurriculars over to being tech-related. So. I, um, you know, got a job as a computer user assistant, as you noted. That was funny because I didn't actually know how to fix computers. So I was actually just learning as I went and Googling stuff to try to figure it out. But I love being paid to learn and I'm paid to learn to this day. So I feel like that was a that was a good strategy actually for me. And I also got involved with uh, what was then called the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. Uh, it's now called the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. I ended up co-founding a conference called RaffleCon, which was, as far as we know, the first internet culture conference. Um, so yeah, lots of fun stuff there. Did manage to find my way into tech, broke into tech as a product manager, working at Microsoft uh, for an internship, and then post-grad, I joined the PowerPoint team as a PM full-time, kind of went from there. But yeah, never looked back, uh, but I feel like I'm able to express more of that professor instinct now as a VC. Yeah, he's still getting paid to learn, exactly. But you know, as you mentioned, you were focusing on like 20th century US history at Harvard, and before that, or before doing your MBA, you also studied Russian at Middlebury Courage. You know, how did those times in your life, you know, change the way you think about business and technology, given that history doesn't repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes a lot, as everyone says. So how did studying history and especially like Russian, you know, history and, and whatever the language uh, impact your views of business and, and technology as you move forward in your career? Well, I mean, I'm the biggest fan of the liberal arts. And actually, to this day, I will hunt down PMs with liberal arts backgrounds. I organize events for them here in San Francisco. And like, if that's you, I definitely want to hear from you. There's not that many of us, but there's more than when I started out in tech. So it's just such a way to enrich your life and enrich your perspective. And concretely, you know, all the things you mentioned from my background, the biggest way that influences me is that 
I uh, feel like I focus equally on the past and the future. And so whenever I'm thinking about the future, as I do every day in VC, I try to ask myself, surely this has happened before. Surely there's something relevant in the past I can go back and look at. And I have this phrase for myself, when in doubt, read your way out. Like, I love reading. And so I will always, you know, try to figure out, okay, I have this interest. Like, recently I got interested in anime. I'm not an anime fan, but I was like, oh, anime is really important for the coming wave of AI companions. It's a big kind of touchstone for a lot of what's going on there with character AI and things like that. Let me read about it. You know, like, I can't become an anime fan overnight, but I can become a student of anime fandom. And so I found a book called Otaku that was about, uh, you know, anime fandom, and I was set, you know. And so I feel like that's a big mechanism in my mind is whenever there's something I'm interested about for the future, I actually make a project out of going back and researching the past. I love that. When in doubt, read your way out. I mean, I feel like it could be when in doubt, you know, you know, chat GPT your way out of it, but for new age kids growing out of school, but it's interesting that you always want to try to like be at least surface level on anything you encounter. And then if you find something really interesting, you'll dig deeper vertically on that. But you obviously broke into tech and your two biggest roles were in product. We're at SoundCloud in Berlin and Quip in San Francisco. You know, how did those two product roles help make you a better product builder and leader? And given all the changes that those companies faced during your time there, obviously SoundCloud being really early before the Spotify's of the world and then Quip, you know, what was that type of transition like as well for you? Yeah, for sure. Well, it's super interesting because actually SoundCloud wasn't really pre-Spotify. SoundCloud and Spotify both, both grew up in Europe simultaneously. And similarly with Quip and Notion, actually, Quip was this product that had a lot in common with Notion and both grew up at the same time, you know, also with Slack, like all of that was happening concurrently. And so I think that uh, it's easy to go back in time and think, about, you know, oh, this one was before, this one was after. But actually, when you look at the timelines, there's a lot of kind of simultaneous invention. And actually, one of the coolest things is going back and connecting with people who were early at Spotify or early at Notion and thinking about what were you experiencing back then? You know, like the, you know, the the past has become the present. So there's no kind of competition about the past now. So what can we learn from each other? And um, but yeah, in terms of those two product roles at SoundCloud and Quip, uh, you know, I moved to Germany in 2013 to join SoundCloud uh, when it was about 200 people growing to 300 in the time I was there. Um, that's actually where my last name is from. So my now husband and I had been long distance while I was in business school. We moved together to Germany. And uh, when we got married, we decided we wanted to share a last name, but he didn't want mine. I didn't want his. We chose Berlin. Uh, because of our shared time there working at SoundCloud. So big touchstone in my life, amazing experience to live and work abroad. Um, and that's probably the biggest influence that that time had on me is just broadening my perspective. And I recently invested in an AI startup in Germany. So it's great to have a way to be back there. It's called Meshkapade. Wow, that's really cool. What was the culture like between like Berlin startup scene and uh, obviously San Francisco? I've always wondered. Well, Berlin had, and I think still has to this day, but I've got to go get back there soon, um, really more of like a, an upstart vibe uh, because it's not the world capital of startups. You know, I think it's easy to get complacent when you're in the world capital of something. And it's really cool to be in a place that's trying to make its mark and everybody's working together to do that. That was very much the vibe in Berlin in 2013 through 2015 when I was there. And I hear that it's very similar today. You know, the startup scene is very tight knit and everyone is kind of in it together. You know, you'd asked about how that time influenced the way I, I look at product. SoundCloud is this incredible example of a very lasting, uh, you know, maybe not the most profitable business in the world, but a very lasting platform. And uh, I worked specifically on monetization and then also the home experience for the SoundCloud app. Where you, when you're working on a dominant mobile experience and you're working on the home experience of that app, it's very high stakes because in consumer apps, you know, people, if they don't like it, they will not use it. Um, in B2B, if people don't like it, maybe they'll use it, maybe they won't use it, maybe someone tells them they have to use it. There's kind of more ways to win. Uh, but in consumer, it has to be perfect uh, in order to win. And so I think that working at SoundCloud really stoked my love for the craft of product. You know, working at Quip was amazing because Quip had very much the same attitude about product craft, but of course was a B2B motion. And so for me, 
I like people, I like organizations, I like psychology. And, uh, you know, it was one thing to work on how can we make an app that's relevant for everyone in the world at SoundCloud? And we had to pay them to come in to do user research. You know, it's like nobody, no, it was nobody's job to figure out how to make SoundCloud as good as possible from a user perspective. With Quip, when we were working with, uh, you know, our customers, it was somebody's job to make Quip work at those companies. And it was really a privilege to feel like we were on the same team figuring out how can we make this as relevant to your employee base as possible. And for me, you know, now at Matrix, I invest mainly in B2B SaaS and applied AI. And that's because at the end of the day, I think that product craft is a choice, but your business model drives a lot of your incentives about how you'll go to market. And uh, the go-to-market of B2B is just more fun for me because there's more ways to win. Well, interesting. It kind of takes the the best of both of those aspects, like building a, a great, lovable product and user experience with SoundCloud, but also building an enterprise, like, go-to-market scalable expansion tool uh, that the whole enterprise can adopt and absorb with Quip. And you got to experience both of those in the product and leadership role, you know, which is really interesting. But before we get into the matrix side of it, I did see that you had a podcast yourself. I think it was called Should We? Uh, and it had six seasons. I found it. It had over 60 episodes or something. You know, what was the story behind that? And uh, what did you get the most out of doing the podcast with your friend, Lisa Sanchez? I mean, it was so much fun. And, you know, we always talk about reviving it. Lisa's my best, best friend. Uh, We were college roommates. And, you know, we still to this day talk for probably hours a day. We have a two-person Slack team that is highly active. There's about 50 channels. Like, we're very organized about our friendship. We have an annual summit. Like, we're we're good. Um, (laughs) The best thing about making a podcast together was just having a shared project. I think as I've grown in my life, I it's become really clear to me that the best way to build and sustain deep relationships is having shared stakes. So I think that comes through really clearly in investing where when you're a board member, you have shared stakes. Your career is on the line as an investor. You know, this company does well. It boosts your career. You know, it provides returns to LPs if it goes poorly, then you're on the line as well. And of course, for the founders, they're all in. Um, And so having that shared stake is an opportunity to spend more time together trying to make cool things happen with people you care about. And there's just nothing better in life. You know, making Should We with Lisa was a chance to do that as a side hustle, as a hobby. And, you know, at one point we did actually a big live event that was awesome with probably 50, 60 people in the the audience and got to meet a bunch of our fans. And we did a Kickstarter project at one point that uh, raised a bunch of money to kind of make a highly produced season and work on the brand. Like it was an awesome sense of project that we still both call back to as a touchstone. The thing that came through most clearly other than the shared stakes and how fun it was to work on something, you know, cool together that we both cared about was just that there's a different level of conversation you have when you know that it has to be interesting for an audience. And even if you're deep friends, you may not focus on interestingness or optimize for interestingness in every conversation. You optimize for bearing your soul if it's your best friend. You just got a lot to cover and actually carving out time in that kind of deep relationship for uh, an intensive, maximally interesting conversation is additive. It's something different than we would automatically get. And so I seek out ways to do that in my life overall. That's an amazing experience to share with your best friend and have like six seasons, as I said, 60 episodes, also raise a Kickstarter campaign and do a live event. I mean, I dream about doing a live event one day, but I'd probably get like five people showing up. Not no, 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 you'll do it. It would be it would be very well attended. We should line it up with one of my trips to Toronto. I would love that. I would love that. Uh, well, obviously, that was a part of your time that you learned from your experience at SoundCloud. But let's jump into your time working as a venture capitalist. So you made the transition from product leader, Equip and SoundCloud to becoming a venture capitalist. You know, what led you to make that transition and maybe give us an, uh, our audience a brief background on who Matrix is and how you ended up landing there. It's such an amazing firm. Let's go back in time to the middle of 2020. Uh, very odd year. You know, it was uh, deep pandemic times. The pandemic, as we know, would go on to last for, for quite a bit longer, but that was the, the deepest and the worst of it. You know, I was just about to go on maternity leave with my second kid. Um, so I have two young kids. They're now three and four and a half. Um, but at the time I was, you know, about to give birth to my second. So uh, scary times to be working from home, you know, eight months pregnant in the middle of a pandemic. And in the thick of that, I found that I really needed distraction. Uh, And, you know, I was fortunate enough to work at Salesforce at the time. The startup I'd been at, Quip, was acquired by Salesforce. And so I stayed there for the next 
four years, continuing to build that product and data science team for Quip within Salesforce. And Salesforce has an amazing parental leave policy. So I knew that I was in good hands. I felt really confident about the team. And so I was able to start winding down my responsibilities before my daughter's July due date. The more I wound them down, the more I realized I wasn't that keen on, you know, the steady state of what was going on. I needed distraction. I actually needed a certain number of Zooms in my day to uh, to kind of keep afloat. So yeah, I'll never forget my first conversation with our managing director, Antonio, the day before my due date, told him that. And he was like, wait, do you have to like go? And I was like, no, no, no. My kids are always late. You know, I only had one kid at that point, but I was very confident that my second would be late as well. And, and she was. Um, so yeah, we just had the most fun conversation. It was by far the most, uh, the most effectively distracting conversation of all of the ones I'd had. Antonio was just ultra present, ultra warm. And, uh, you know, he's really um, a big role model for me in terms of being yourself in venture. I think that there was a certain archetype or three archetypes, something like that of VC that I was familiar with. And all of them were aspirational, but I didn't feel like any of them were really me. He was much closer to something I could imagine growing into um, in that he's just so authentic and warm. Yeah, we had a great first conversation. He was kind enough to be patient while I gave birth and, you know, dealt with that. And we reconnected a few weeks later. Uh, I think our second conversation was a few inches away from my daughter's snoo. And I think I might have even, you know, snoozed this robot bassinet for modern babies. But I like put my laptop on front of a diaper box on top of a stool that was a few inches away from her snoo. And we just made it work. I mean, I think that what felt very clear to me from the beginning was that Matrix really knew what they were looking for. And now that I'm a part of the firm, I see how thesis-driven we are about everything we do. Um, Just a bit about the firm. We've been around a long time, since the 70s. We were early investors in Apple and FedEx once upon a time. um, And since then, I've had a great run uh, with investments like HubSpot, Zendesk, Canva. That's just on the B2B side, but we were also early investors in Oculus and Control Labs. We invest in chips and components. That's mainly my partner, Stan, which not a lot of firms do. Amazing, amazing track record. But I'd never heard of Matrix when they reached out. So it actually took a while for me to realize this is like an underrated firm. You know, this is a firm where it's punching above weight in terms of, you know, impact to awareness. And I remember at some point I told them that and they were like, yeah, thank you for realizing that. But really, I've come to realize that it's because all that matters is working with the best founders and all that matters there is being great when you get to us and being the most helpful, most impactful investors that partner with founders. And uh, the thing that the things that power that are not always the same things that drive awareness. And we'll drive awareness when we can, when we think we uh, we have a way to that's additive, but Really, nothing matters if we're not being the best possible partner to founders. I love that kind of strong, thesis-driven way of organizing our time. It's a small firm, uh, you know, $800 million under management in our latest fund and more across all the funds. And 10 investors on the team writing only concept through Series A checks. And then, of course, we reserve capital for following on too. But, you know, it's like not a lot of investors to invest a lot of money. Um, And each of us typically invests in one or two startups per year. So it's just not a lot of volume uh, because we spend so much of our time with existing portfolio companies. And yeah, so anyway, that's a bit about the firm. And there's one thing that all of us have in common, those 10 investors, all of us come from backgrounds as founders and product people. Half the firm also immigrated to the U.S. at some point in their life. And so uh, I think that that combination of founder, product, immigrant, like it's a really great energy there and a very uh, high diversity of thought. And you grew up in a lot of different countries. So it's like awesome to work with people who have uh, such different backgrounds. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, the fact that you never heard about them, given all the hits that they have, but obviously you not being a part of the venture world until you basically were giving birth to your second child makes sense. But obviously they welcomed you with open arms. You know, I've known about Matrix for a while and they are an incredible firm, but it is amazing that being an early stage investor with you know, 10 investment partners only doing one or two deals a year. It's got to be pretty, you know, interesting to see all the ones you see and still say no to, you know, given how well known the firm is as being such an exceptional early stage investor, you know, because each partner focuses on specific industries, as you mentioned, how does it work nowadays with so many different companies overlapping across industries? What I mean by that is like every company becomes a fintech company these days with embedded fintech and companies are consumer or SMB or mid-market and enterprise, or they just cross so many horizontal lines. How does that work at the partner level? Is there any deal attribution at Matrix or is it all one big team? 
Uh, first things first, uh, we back founders as a firm. And so when you get backed by Matrix, all of us are behind you. You know, but the way we get there is not the way every firm gets there. Uh, we're a conviction firm, so we don't vote on deals. It's up to the deal sponsor to make the final decision. And the way we support each other in the decision process is by raising questions, raising doubts, offering connections, offering perspective from the other deals we've seen. And there we find it actually really helpful to have a certain amount of overlap in what each of us is interested in. Because when we evaluate a startup, it's a big deal, first of all. Each of us maybe brings you know, not that many, less than five, uh, fewer than five companies through to a full partner pitch meeting in a year. And so when you're about to do that, it's like a really big deal. And so it feels high stakes, it feels important, you want all the perspective you can get. Thinking about deal attribution, my career is dependent on doing great deals and helping those founders as much as possible. I get the privilege of doing what I do as long as I'm still on a path to doing great deals and helping those founders as much as possible. If I did great deals and then didn't help those founders at all, I would be out. You know, if I, uh, if I do not great deals and help them as much as possible, maybe I live to see another day, you know, but uh, it's very much dependent on just doing the best deals and helping them as much as possible. Uh, but it's also about being a good colleague. So I think that we have an incentive structure at Matrix that makes us maximally incentivized to help each other's portfolio companies and also be as supportive as possible in the evaluation process. Me doing a deal, I benefit just as much from my partner doing a deal as me doing a deal. And I love that because it's really then about what's best for the founder, who's the best possible partner for them. But the pressure on me is an internal pressure of, am I seeing the deals I want to see? Am I meeting the founders I want to meet? And am I helping the way I want to help? And because it's no one's fault but my own if I'm not doing those three things. Got it. So there is no deal attribution. It is all one, one, one team. One team, one team. The deal attribution is is spiritual in that, like, if I'm not doing deals, like, you know, something's wrong. But uh, yes, in terms of the way it actually works mechanically, um, no deal attribution. Right. So you have done some amazing deals and you've backed some amazing companies recently, including our mutual friend Ross Rich and the co-founders of Accord, uh, who are based in Toronto and San Francisco. You know, what were the key factors that made Ross and his company stand out and be one of the thousands of startups you get pitched on to make it to that final pitch meeting and make you want to back them. Ross stood out from the very first conversation. We were fortunate to have that first conversation in person at Matrix uh, while he was in town. And I think even that stood out. I think a lot of founders now are doing first meetings over Zoom. It's efficient. I can't blame them. But it does stand out when someone makes a point of coming out for a first meeting or, you know, I'll go to meet them. Uh, you know, it's like, it's important, I think, to start off on the right foot. From that first conversation, what came through to me was his intensity, his insight, and his depth. You know Ross, he's a very intense person, and the whole Accord team is that way. Uh, you know, Accord is a sales execution platform, and so Ross has that background as a superstar seller, and it comes through. You know, he's just, uh, he, they have this phrase at Accord, 10 out of 10. Everything's got to be 10 out of 10, and Ross is obsessive about making sure every detail of every interaction is 10 out of 10. And I think that we kind of saw that in each other from the first conversation later on when we were in the final stages of the deal. He was like, I get the feeling you like to work hard. And so do I. I was like, oh, yeah, I like to work hard. And you can just feel it when you're in a process. You know, he responds to texts at any time of day. So do I. You can just get a lot more cycles in when you're both that responsive. Thinking about insight and depth, one of the things I try to do first in any conversation with a founder is just get into the product together. Truth in product, like let's not look at a deck. Let's look at the product that you built where you had to make a bunch of trade-offs and you can't tell me the story you think I want to hear. There's one product. Let's go through it together and let's go off script together. I always try to find something in the sidebar that we can click on together and go a few levels deep on. And, you know, Ross is a seller. Like Ross is a go-to-market expert. And what stood out to me was that for someone who's world-class at go-to-market, he was also world-class on product. Um, you know, I asked some very detailed question about the text editor, and he could go eight levels deep on that with me about why it was the way it was, changes they've considered, you know, things they might do in the future. I love that. I think that somebody who's a superstar at go-to-market uh, for a product that's built for go-to-market teams, uh, but then also, you know world-class in product, that's very rare to find in one person. So those are some of the things that stood out to me and I've just had the best time working with Accord. You know, it's amazing. You say everyone comes from either a founder or product background at Matrix. And obviously when you see these demos and you take them off script, your your wheels must be spinning on ideas that you want to you know insert right away. 
How do you think about kind of pushing on a founder uh, while leveraging your product, you know, uh, experience and shaping how that product becomes what you want it to become versus letting the founder find their own path and journey into getting it there? Absolutely. Well, that's one of the things I had to let go of in becoming an investor is that I don't, I'm not the product manager anymore. You know, it's not my choice what features get prioritized and what don't. What we find at Matrix is that that product background is really most relevant in a first meeting and in knowing what we don't know. In a first meeting, I think that founders want to talk with people who care about the things they care about. And at the earliest stages, what you've got is product and people. You've not got a business yet. And so we can talk about the people, but it's also fun to talk about the product because products are easier to change than people are, you know? So it's like, we can talk about people and the way they are on the team you've built. And that's fascinating. I mean, that's a lot of the actual work of being a board member after investment is working on the people stuff. But product is fun. It's something that is uh, a lot of material that we can have a shared perspective on just by looking at the same screen in a first meeting and a second meeting. And I always do try to be generative with product ideas in a first meeting, just so they know who they're working with. I think that it's very hard to fake thinking on your feet. And if they can see that I'm having a plausible product idea that may not be good, but it's one that's relevant, that they hadn't thought of five minutes in to seeing the product, they're like, oh, you can go there. That's now on the table. That's something that we can go to together that most investors couldn't. And then how it actually ends up going is that it's very rare we circle back to that because really I wouldn't be backing them if I didn't think they had if I didn't think they had better product ideas than I do. And so I'll bring it up when I see an opportunity. I'll play with the product. I become users of the products I back. Like we'll go there. But really most of the time, the gate to success is organizing your people to build the best product possible. Um, not my product ideas, whether they're cool or not. Yeah, for sure. I mean, getting the trust from a founder willing to even be open and candid about like the decisions and the trade-offs they made when design when designing products is an incredible opportunity just to be a fly in the wall for those conversations and then getting inside of how they think about like you know the trade-offs between their ICP product uh, vision versus their like MVP product vision and how they're thinking about layering that in I always love having those off the bar conversations usually don't happen at the board meeting because all the other board members want to talk about the finances and like the sales pipeline and things like that but you and I both agree that like hearing about the product vision and seeing it actually being implemented is quite rewarding. You've also mentioned uh, being preoccupied with emoji productivity, remote fitness, and applied AI. Uh, can you explain why these topics are of interest to you and what their potential for growth is? Well, it's so funny. You saying this made me realize I need to like update my profiles because I think I put those up uh, when I first joined Matrix two and a half years ago. And a bunch, has changed, but a, a bunch has stayed the same. A bunch has stayed the same. I mean, I would say that very much my two focus areas remain B2B SaaS and applied AI and especially the intersection of the two. That's definitely consistent. Um, when I think back to the moment in time when I posted emoji productivity, remote fitness, uh, I'll talk through the stories of each of those briefly and where I'm at on them today. With emoji productivity, this is a term I came up with. I have a blog post on it. It didn't catch on. So, you know, I, I need to kind of revise my strategy for coming up with uh, terminology, uh, maybe just use the commonly accepted terms. But, you know, my attitude with emoji productivity was saying there's been this trend where work and workplace products and consumer products are merging in terms of their interfaces. And emoji are something that we maybe first used in iMessage or, you know, in social products. But then when Slack introduced emoji reactions, introduced custom emoji, I think it, that really sparked a wave of where can we use emoji in the workplace. And I think that there's a lot of use cases for them, actually, that have been emergent. Notion as well? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And we were on that train with Quip, too. You know, I personally led some of our, you know, emoji amplification efforts inside the product. So um, even just having a checkmark, you know, green checkmark emoji, very useful. And, you know, in Slack, you can even kick off workflows, automated workflows with certain emoji reactions. So, you know, I think that uh, just seeing all the emergent properties of what can happen in a product once you welcome in some more consumer patterns, let things be fun. You know, emoji isn't always fun, by the way. You can be passive aggressive with emoji as well, but you can be passive aggressive in your personal life also. You know, the point is not that emoji is only fun. The point is that when you allow for a wider dynamic range of experience in the workplace, you get more of the top end of that range too. I think you get better performance out of your best performers when people can be their best selves. Um, 
and their full selves. So emoji, you know, was my kind, I actually ran an exercise where uh, I worked with a virtual assistant to just scan through like 200 B2B SaaS websites and see which of them had emoji on them, uh, just to try to figure out whether this was kind of like a bat signal that I could use to reach out to certain startups. Um, It turned out that I needed to define emoji a little more tightly because the virtual assistant, uh, you know, scanned for just icons of any kind, which of course, like almost every site does uh, have. A lot of crypto sites, Web3 sites. Yeah, exactly. Whenever I have like a, whenever I have a thread to pull on, I try to actually do the project of pulling on it because something always comes out of it. Like one of the harder things to do is come up with a good thread to pull on. So emoji productivity was one of those for me. And then remote fitness was very much a fixation of mine coming out of deep pandemic times. I thought it was so interesting that, uh, you know, we all had these beliefs about what it took to maintain fitness. Um, But when a lot of options for that group fitness classes, at some points running without a mask in San Francisco, gyms were taken away, human creativity flourishes. And all of a sudden, you have this forced experimentation with your everyday routines. And you figure out there's wiggle room in places you didn't realize you figure out that maybe you can be motivated by a an asynchronous coach through a product like Future, or you figure out that actually Peloton is enough. You know, you don't need to run outside. You can bike indoors, things like that. And from a personal perspective, as a parent of young kids, it's super hard to get the childcare coverage to be out of the house. So I was very personally interested in, you know, how technology can open up more flexibility for health and wellness. The, the remote fitness thread did lead to several of my investments. Um, so one of the first deals I did, the seed round I led in a company called Infinity AI, their first major product was synthetic data for computer vision for remote fitness applications specifically. Um, so it's not exactly like purely causal because I'd met the Infinity team before they even started the company, before I got obsessed with remote fitness. So I kind of got obsessed with remote fitness because of them. And then I eventually got to invest in them. But hey, it all kind of dovetailed in the end. Um, and then Infinity introduced me to my latest seed deal uh, in this uh, startup called Meshcapade, which is building foundation models for 3D human representation, which is also very relevant for all kinds of perception tasks related to pose estimation and how how humans move, um, which is relevant for remote fitness too. So there's never any research or time spent that's wasted. And that's one of the coolest things about this work. And one of the most meaningful things about uh, the life I get to lead now is that I really feel every day that everything I've ever done adds up to something because, you know, anytime you have a fascination, it eventually comes back around and you get to do something with it. You know, that makes me wonder, like, you know, you've been doing this for a couple of years now as a full-time investor, you know, you obviously pull on a lot of threads, threads and you read a lot about a lot of stuff, but there's also a timing aspect to being a good investor, not just being well-educated or well-versed on a certain industry. You know, how are you staying up to date on the latest trends and innovations, but also being quick enough to pull the trigger to know that you're not actually jumping in a little too late after the initial wave has already started? Well, at Matrix, we try to be uh, sort of trend uh, agnostic. So I would say that following trends is a anti-pattern at Matrix. And sometimes it just lines up that uh, something we are intrinsically interested in is also trendy. And uh, we're more frustrated than excited about that, you know, because uh, it adds to the competition. It adds to the volume. It makes things harder to sift through. But that's fine. That's the job. Thinking specifically there of generative AI inside B2B SaaS um, applications, super interesting to me. I've been writing about that for a long time. Also interesting to every other investor in the market. So actually something I have to challenge myself on is when something is an enduring interest, not leaning out from it just because it became trendy. That's more my inclination and probably more the matrix inclination because, you know, there's a few good startups born every year and it doesn't matter if it was trendy or not. That's coincidental. What matters is if it's the best startup of the year and you shouldn't miss those. Uh, You shouldn't miss those outliers. Uh, Talking about power law, you shouldn't miss those outliers just because it was trendy. Right. So maybe how do you interpret power law then? Like if you're, if you're saying you see it all, how do you interpret that power law? Yeah, well, we don't see it all. I mean, I think that's one of the trade-offs of Matrix is that with 10 investors, you know, we see what we see, but we definitely don't see it all. And I feel paranoid about that. I wish I could see it all. Knowing that I can't see it all, what's most important is that I am really good when you get to me, um, which is actually like a, um, like a sleep thing on some level. I need to get enough sleep so that I have the 
presence to be good when you get to me. Um, and then I really need to focus on, I can't back a founder I haven't met. So every week I need to be meeting new future founders, new current founders. Like it's a wasted week if I didn't meet 10 to 20 new founders. Mm -hmm. You are constantly meeting high potential founders and you're good when people get to you. Your throughput should be good. You know, you should be able to uh, stand out from their other conversations because you put in more work to the first conversation. You're more present. You ask better questions. So thinking about power law, the way this relates to power law is that what really matters in a year is backing one of the five best startups of the year. And those won't be known for many, many, many years. So you need to figure out proxies in the meantime, um, such as following the thread of, you know, the people you think are excellent, who do they respect? Um, you know, I do a lot of community events, small group events, because those are my favorite events, just to try to, I always say, like, bring a friend, you know, it's like a dinner, six to eight person dinner. I invite two people, each of them brings a friend, we all meet someone new. It's a wonderful use of three hours, really just being focused on, I cannot win by seeing everything, because I cannot see everything. We're just not, that's not our firm design. We're not designed to have full coverage. What I can do is follow threads obsessively. And get to the bottom of them, you know, get to the fullest extent of all of these, you know, interconnections, uh, personal interconnections, topical interconnections, um, and also really think about where things are going, you know, what, what are the fifth order implications of a technological change? How can I be thinking ahead on those? How can I use the study of history and the future to give me an insight that someone else might not have? And maybe the insight is wrong, but it leads to a deeper conversation because at least I've thought about it with my own brain. So uh, so yeah, that's I, I think it's very grounding to say, on the one hand, complete lack of control. I can't control which startups get started and I can't control seeing every startup in the year. I just can't do it. What I can control is uh, identifying threads interpersonal and topic-wise that I find interesting and obsessively following them through to the furthest extent. Yeah, it also always comes back to history, it sounds like, for you learning from history. But like you say, you try to see 10 to 20, company, 20 companies a week, but obviously you're also valuing how much of those make it through to the, like the due diligence or deeper dive stage. Are you looking at your numbers in your CRM every month and just questioning if you had a good month or a bad month or not really? You're just anecdotally saying like, I need to make more use of my time by meeting more founders and doing more dinners. Or are you qualitative with that? I, I'm very metrics driven about it. Um, but I think it's kind of weird to talk about because uh, it can make it sound more mechanistic or less human. You know, for me, I'm an introvert. So I actually need to push myself to meet more people. And the way for me to do that is by making it a project. And any project looks kind of metrics driven. You know, it's like, if I were a super extrovert, maybe I could just do it intuitively, but I'm not. So I need to push myself and projects help with that. I've become more and more metrics driven over time, uh, just because I've realized that uh, it affects my day to day work when I make time for those reflection exercises. So every month, I reflect on every meeting I had in the month. And uh, I use that to make a more qualitative, more and less decision. Here's what I'm going to do less of next month. Here's what I'm going to do more of this month. Beyond that, it's hard to be very rigorous because you have to be open to serendipity. And if you overschedule yourself with some project, uh, you're going to regret it because the best opportunities usually come out of the blue through someone you trust, you know, or you hear about it early, you couldn't plan on it. Um, and so I have to maintain a certain amount of capacity for that. And of course, for spending half my time with existing portfolio companies. I mean, that's an ongoing commitment as well. And that's a big part of the matrix way. But that kind of metrics driven reflection is for me a chance to really get real about what I did this month, how it went, how it felt, and what I want to do more of next month and what I want to do less of. And the more of often flows into what do I want to write about? What are the beacons I want to put out there that will draw interesting conversations to me? And then what do I want to organize? What kinds of gatherings do I want to put together that will bring interesting people into my life that I might be able to be a resource to? Yeah, for sure. I think you got to have a bit of the you know spontaneity availability uh, for everything that comes your way, but also being metrics driven. For us at Ripple, we become very metrics driven. Every month we look at our CRM and we don't necessarily care about the total number of companies we see, even though that continues to get bigger. We saw 10,000 companies last year as a pre-seed investor. What we care about is the throughput. 
how many of the leads that are coming in are making it into qualified leads for us to actually spend time getting to know? And then how many of those are we at the right time, at the right spot for us to go deep into an actual you know, potential investment with? That's what we care about increasing on because it allows us to hone in how much valuable time we're spending on the best quality leads. And so we use our affinity CRM to produce those kind of reports for us. Absolutely. Yeah, we use Affinity as well. And I think maybe the thing that is true at Matrix is that because it's one or two deals per partner per year, if I take that reflection exercise and my takeaway from it is just get better and better at the basics, it's going to be a missed opportunity because the best deals from come from doing really weird stuff. <laughs> you know, So like I shouldn't be better and better and better at the basics. It's nice to be good at the basics. I try really hard to be good at the basics, but I always try to remind myself, optimize for outlier outcomes. Like you're not going to get to the best deals by just doing all the normal stuff well. You're going to get to the best deals by being one of a kind and you have to invest time in being one of a kind. It just doesn't just happen. Yeah. And speaking of time, you know, your time is not just focused on finding the next founders to back, but it's also supporting your existing portfolio investments, you know, and those investments are obviously going through a lot of changes right now with the market. So, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges and opportunities you're seeing today with your companies uh, and how are you advising them to make it through this market to eventually get to that either later stage VC funding round or some other type of uh, event, given how much uh, changes happen at the Series A and beyond stage? Well, the biggest drum I've been beating is what hasn't changed. You know, what hasn't changed is that a seed, a concept, a Series A stage company, is it's always them against the world. It's always an outlier event for them to make it through to the next round. And that doesn't change with the market. It was always going to be hard and it's still going to be hard. You know, you can't get over influenced by seeing the struggles of a Series C company and trying to apply those to where you're at because they've de-risked a lot and now they're working on optimizing things. Your biggest risk is still that you're not going to be relevant at all. That you're not going to find product market fit. And so it's a big mistake to underinvest in the actions that will lead to discovering product market fit just because you see other people tightening their belts. That said, I think that a very useful characteristic of the current market is that it's brought back the perspective of trade-offs where, you know, if there's infinite money available and you feel like it's going to be easy to raise the next round, the trade-offs are a lot less clear and visible um, to, you know, what you're, what you're sacrificing today in order to get more money in or what you're sacrificing today, what, what's the opportunity cost of that incremental hire. And as the daughter of an economist, I love having trade-offs front and center because there's always a cost. There's always a cost. And sometimes it's a monetary cost and an opportunity cost at once. And, being able to have candid, raw conversations about that, where nobody's in, you know, nobody's in la la land about uh, about oh, this is a trade off free decision. Every decision has trade offs, and those are very present in all my conversations with founders right now. I love that point. I think that is so true that we forgot about those trade off conversations, the opportunity, monetary, or some other growth opportunity conversation, because there was so much money going in that the trade offs were just like, oh, it's okay. We still have more money to try that again if it doesn't work out. But now there's real economic decisions that have to be made. So, how are you uh, helping first time founders? who've never really been confronted with these types of trade-offs, think about them and make sure they understand the actual processes they should do if they've made mistakes in the past, how to learn from them so that when they have to make those trade-off decisions in the future, they're much more prepared for them. Yeah. So working with first-time founders, I think there's always two levels. And it's actually very meta because it's the same two levels that I have as a relatively new investor. Um, the two levels are get the basics right and don't lose your edge. That there's often a trade-off between getting the basics right and trying to almost play startup or play investor, like do all the behaviors or activities that you think add up to being a startup or being an investor, and then taking away time from whatever is your edge. One of the roles I play with the startups I back and join the boards of is just being the drumbeat of reminding them what their edge is. Ross, I'm constantly reminding him that he's a world-class go-to-market mind. And, you know, that is the solution to a lot of problems. You know, it's like that should always be on the table as a, a solution that's within reach uh, because it's a superpower of his. You know, with some of my other startups, their edge is making something work in practice that should work in theory, but rarely does. 
And, you know, there's lots of things that add up to that. But when you've got a track record of like people said it could be done, but then no one else somehow did it and you did, that's a track record that you can build on. And so I think that I have to, when I back a first-time founder, make sure that we run through all the basics just so that all the unknown unknowns are in the air. Because when we back a company at concept or at seed, maybe they didn't go through, you know, a startup boot camp or something where somebody told them all the basics. And so I just want to make sure that's in the air, on the table, that there's, you know, nothing that we're skipping over. But we actually try to move through that pretty quickly. And the best founders are very fast at self-educating once they identify a gap. And that stuff, it's like the basics there's best practices for. But finding your edge, sustaining your edge, honing your edge, these are things that are very personal. And that's the thing that I try to spend the most time with founders. So how do you think about reinvestment decisions at Matrix? You know, what circumstances do you do the investment uh, for follow-on and when do you decide against it? Definitely case by case. But I think that the uh, the thing that may be different about Matrix versus most firms is, you know, we're early stage focused and our edge is understanding people and understanding product. For us, if we feel like there's been a bunch of progress that's not crystallized into market visible signals, then that's something that we want to support because eventually that progress is going to crystallize into success. But if we have an inside view of that, because we see that they're doing all the things that should lead to success, that really encourages us to want to double down. Uh, there's two parts to that, of course. There's uh, there's actually making the progress and nothing happens without that. You can't fake progress. Progress is something that you're either making or you're not. Uh, but also communication, making that progress visible to, if not the whole market, to us as investors. And, you know, the best way I've found to make that low overhead is just by being highly involved on a weekly basis with the meat of the business. Um, and so I always like to say to founders that are considering taking money from Matrix, you know, it's nice to be strategic, but there's just a lot of work to do in an early stage startup. And we want to be your extra bandwidth because there's truth in the details of that everyday work. And you'll know the right strategy if you're deeply involved in the details. There's not enough time in the world and we would never wish to micromanage a founder that we are backing because we think they have a unique insight and they're the best person in the world to pursue it. They're driving, you know, but it's kind of nice to have somebody to work through the copy changes with, to, you know, screen share the spreadsheet with, and uh, being able to be very in the details together. And somebody who is willing to go there is a big part of the work we do. Yeah. So when you say the communications and getting involved, it really means like having you as an extra co-founder, you know, for yeah, those kind exactly. of conversations. Yeah. We say the same thing at Ripple. It's very important. We don't like to be called out of the blue at a, a quarter end and say, hey, you know, we need to do a bridge round. It's like, wait, we've been scheduling these bi-weeklies for the last six months. How come this is only being brought up now? No surprises for sure. I got to ask you on a fun side note, you know, what's your biggest passion in life outside of work? You've got two young kids. Uh, you've been in, you know, tech companies. You started a podcast. What sort of projects are you working on now? So I love Lego and this is uh, this is a late breaking obsession. Uh, I was not a Lego kid, um, but uh, it was my pandemic hobby and I'm still very into it. Uh, my only limit is space. So I'm running out of space for these sets. But what's the latest and greatest that you've built the biggest ones? Oh, uh, well, so uh, our managing director is also really into Lego. So uh, he sends me a set every year for the holidays and I send him a present too. And so the latest one that I built from him was the um, baby blue Vespa, which is beautiful and sits on my desk at work. Um, oh, wow. But Lego is just an amazing company. I mean, I've, I've looked into the history of it, of course, uh, a fair amount. And um, they just put so much thought into experience design. But it's experience design that once they send you the box, it's kind of out of their hands. Um, and so I think that there is a lot to be learned from experiencing those designed sets uh, in terms of how we can build software that has the impact we intend. That's really cool. Yeah. I've got some friends who are really obsessed with it. That makes me think like the, uh, you know, acquired guys should do an episode on Lego. That would be a really good yes, one. Yes, please. Yeah. Push. Let's start the campaign. Yeah. Let's, let's tweet that out and tell them they got to do one. Cause Lego would be a really cool, interesting one for them to do. All right. Before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off your favorite podcast. So my favorite podcast is Deep Questions with Cal Newport. And What's that about? So, so useful to, uh, he's like the deep work guy. So uh, it's just a constant reminder to me to make space to think. Fantastic. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog? Hello Metaverse with Annie Zhang and Elena Mossi. 
Nice. Next is your favorite tech gadget. This is a new one, and it's a very easy one. It's the Anchor 737 Power Bank. It's a portable battery that can power MacBooks. Um, and this is like the payoff of the uh, USB-C transition that was until now not fully realized in my life. But I just ordered one, and I've used it already a bunch of times. Um, it's just amazing to have uh, power with you on the go and not be reliant on power outlets. And is that because you're on the go with places that you just don't want to plug into? Or is it just you want to always have the power running in case you're just too lazy to plug it in? It's a psychological thing. Like I need to know that I'm not going to be blocked by lack of power. Yeah, because then it stops you from bringing the laptop in the first place. Like sometimes I'll carry my laptop and my iPad because the iPad's the backup in case my power goes down on my laptop. Exactly. I should look into that one. Okay, favorite new trend. So retro apps in general, especially retro itself. Retro is kind of like the new retro Instagram back to the future kind of thing. And uh, I just love it. I mean, probably because I'm a millennial, but all my friends from the early days of Instagram are on that thing right now. And I'm having so much fun posting and seeing, you know, pics of people's real lives. It's kind of been lost in the- Wait, sorry, Instagram is retro? Uh, So there's a new app built by former former Instagram employees called Retro. Oh my God. uh, Which is a photo app that is just beautiful experience design and uh, really thoughtful touches that make it rewarding to post daily. It's like bourbon, but like actual. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Favorite book? Uh, So lots, but the one I'm most into right now is called The Age of M. So it's a very strange book uh, by an economist named Robin Hansen, where he goes through the uh, 10 implications of autonomous, uh, like basically uploading our brains to the cloud one day. Um, And like, it's so sci-fi, but there's no plot line. It's like an encyclopedia of the future based on just applying basic like econ assumptions to this one premise of uploading our brains to the cloud. It had been recommended to me a lot. It took me a long time to get into it because weirdly, the last time I checked, it wasn't available for Kindle. It's only available on paper, which is sort of ironic. But I finally committed and I'm about halfway through and it's blowing my mind and I wish I'd started sooner. Wow. I'm sure they're going to make that into a movie one day for sure. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. So I mentioned this at least once today, but uh, optimize for outlier outcomes. I think that, you know, all that matters in life is health, family, and the most interesting thing that you do. And uh, you'll get there not by doing all the basics right religiously, but by organizing your time in an unusual way for long periods of time. Parallel and kind of contradictory lesson, which is that the basic stuff is the advanced stuff. It's so hard to get family and health and fitness dialed in. And it took me a long time to even approximate that. And I'm still working on it. I'll forever be working on it. Uh, But you can't get lost in just the kind of turning the crank on doing all the basics right. You've got to make time to reach for outlier outcomes. Really good advice. And thanks so much for joining us in the tank today with Diana Kimball Berlin from Matrix. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Maddie B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time.